So I uh, delight to be introduced by my uh, friend, Dr. Scott Gibson, whose uh, foresight and at the time courage uh, was responsible with another friend for having, who's with the Lord now, for having our organization start. So this was not always here. We did not always gather, but at a time when standing for biblical orthodoxy as preachers became increasingly important and rare, it was uh, Scott who got us going. So to have us now gathering and uh, having some legacy here now, Scott, I delight to, uh, to be able to follow your invitation. And to follow Charlie, my friend, uh, uh, you know, as I listened to uh, Pastor Dates speaking, I thought, I'm not going to say anything that he hasn't already said. Uh, but then when I teach students, I say, repetition is one of the strongest tools of a preacher. <laughs> so, so if it's a repeat, uh, there, there we go. And I'm, I'm thankful for uh, Charlie Dates' ministry and to be able to follow his words. So I was asked to speak about the calling of a pastor scholar, of a minister theologian. And uh, just to begin, I think you well recognize that defining and defending what it means to be a pastor scholar or a minister theologian can quickly, even unawares, take us to presuppositions that we may not know that we have nor where they formed in terms of what it means to be a pastor scholar. What forms that understand? What's in your head as you think of what is a pastor scholar? What's a minister who's also a theologian? Um, if you think about William Selden's Princeton Seminary, a narrative history, he describes the academic context that for so much of our national understanding of what a scholar is who is also a pastor, formed as we think about the credentials we are supposed to have. What, what formed that understanding? Selden writes, of the some 30 Protestant seminaries that were in existence by 1840 in the United States, six were Presbyterian, of which Princeton was the largest. Daily schedules for training ministers of the word included rising bells at 5 a.m., followed by chapel, breakfast, and then classes. There was no charge for room. There was no charge for tuition. However, the wood for heating cost you $10 a year. And meals were from $1.25 to $2.50 a week. Those were your expenses. Student James Waddle Alexander reported on the curriculum. What did students do in preparing for the ministry of God's Word. He wrote in his journal, we recite Hebrew, Greek, the confession of faith, biblical history. We hear lectures on theology, on biblical history, on criticism of the original scriptures, on Jewish antiquities. On Monday evening, I attend a society for improvement in the criticism of the Bible. On Tuesday night, the Theological Society. On Thursday night, I am at liberty to attend evening lectures at the college. On Friday night, the Theological Society, again, where questions in ethics and divinity are discussed. On Saturday night, we have a weekly prayer meeting. On Sunday, we have sermons 
from three professors. We live in a kind of literary atmosphere. All the conversation carried on here is of a literary kind. By the 1870s, this literary atmosphere was defined by what was known as the classical curriculum for pastoral preparation. That 30 years from the original diary entry included now more things. There was in the classical curriculum church history and history of religions, not just Christianity. And not only that, but wait for it, for the first time there's the introduction of homiletics. Elocution, pastoral and ecclesiastical theology, apologetics and ethics, and systematic theology. Students were permitted to enroll at the college in various elective courses, including revealed religion, metaphysical science, and philosophy. And the seminary faculty, all three of them, also offered electives in Arabic, Chaldee, and Sanskrit. That classical curriculum began to receive serious challenge, as a number of you know, in the early decades of the 20th century, when students, actually sponsored by the board of trustees, were so impudent, that was in the faculty minutes, the students were so impudent as to appeal for the inclusion of courses in the English Bible. How dare they want courses in English Bible? And in a classic example of everything old is new again, the board also appealed for the faculty to teach courses with pastoral issues and ministerial responsibilities outside the pulpit. But most startling to the faculty were the student petitions that began to circulate actually requesting the professors to be, quote, pastoral in their teaching, close quote, to offer practical instruction in the life and leadership of the local church. How dare they? The issues, and this will sound uncomfortably contemporary, for um, all faculty and administrators, even in current seminary settings, those issues came to a head, some of you will know, in the 1920s and 30s under the presidency of J. Ross Stevenson. Stevenson got leverage for change when the trustees insisted because of declining enrollments, because of exodus from students. There were a number of them in series that says, we're tired of this classical, it is not realistic, it's not dealing with the church, and so there was a series of exoduses of students to the impractical, classical curriculum. But there was another exodus going on, and that other exodus that was going on was that championed by the Bible-believing professors. Because the Bible-believing professors who were the champions of orthodoxy became coextensive with understanding that the classical curriculum is what would maintain classical orthodoxy. So it was actually the Bible-minded professors, the one that we champion a lot in evangelical circles today, the old Princetonians who were staying true to the Scriptures, who became identified with the classical curriculum and were themselves exiting uh, because uh, they were trying to hold to the classical curriculum rather than the liberal, perceived, practical courses 
that were now in the curriculum. So causing considerable debate then and even now is the question of whether the classical emphasis of the Bible-believing faculty hastened or hindered the movement in the larger church toward liberalism. And some of you know that's still a very hot debate among the historians. Did the classical emphasis of the Bible-believing, because particularly in Presbyterian circles, unlike most liberalism, it did not begin in the seminary. It began in the churches. So in Presbyterian circles, the liberalism came in as the Bible-believing professors tried to hold to the classical curriculum, and it was actually the pastors who said, that's not practical anymore, and began to drift from it because of, as you will, the archaism as they perceived it from the old Princetonians, out-of-touch scholarship. So we're, we're still debating. Did the classical curriculum lead to or lead from faithful Christianity? And we won't solve that today. But having said that, we still should consider why those issues still create smiles on your faces, because you know the debates still go among us, in our faculties, with our administrators, even our boards of trustees, even our students still push one way or another. How practical are we? How academic are we? What better secures the faith in terms of what people should know? We recognize that there is this push-pull, even in the pastor-scholar names that we put together. We know that sound exposition of Scripture requires being prepared in season and out to give a reason for the hope that is in us. And we know that to rightly divide the word of truth, what we have to do is scholarship. We have to be able to cut the right way, to make the road straight. Why should pastors be scholars? And why should ministers be theologians? And are those even the right terms? As you think about what we are called to be for the sake of ministering the word, as Charlie was saying, in the local church. We actually are in the midst, some of you will know, in the flurry of articles, which is assume, I assume why the society is actually discussing this this year. I mean, we're, we're kind of in the midst of a new debate about what it is to be a pastor scholar. So you have persons like John Piper and D.A. Carson fleshing out what does it mean to be a Piper pastor scholar, or Carson reverting the order, inverting the order, a scholar pastor. And you have those articles appearing. Owen Strachan and Kevin Van Hooser argue that the pastoral office is a theological office. Strachan quotes both David Wells and Doug Sweeney and their support. Their discussions, that is, Wells and Sweeney, cite such figures as Calvin, Luther, Augustine, in defense of the idea that the work of the church is best advanced by those who are both able pastors and at the very same moment, able scholar theologians. Curiously, Andrew Wilson takes exactly the same argument to say these are the exceptions that prove they are not the rule. So Wilson takes the notables, such as Luther, Calvin, Augustine, and makes the case that they are exceptions that prove this rule. Most pastors who do not expect to make the history books like the notables just mentioned, 
must be generalist who grasp the general issues in the context of the pastoral endeavor. But to do the pastoral work, they do not aspire to be scholars whose careers and specialization inevitably diminish pastoral energies and distract them from pastoral duties. To be an adequate scholar will require a focus that a pastor cannot expend. Michael Kruger tries to cut between all of that and give a different taxonomy. Did you know all this argument was going on these days? You know, we're right in the midst of it. Michael Kruger does us all a favor by offering a taxonomy for what it means to be a scholar-pastor or a pastor-scholar or a pure pastor or a devoted scholar or something between, which allows appropriate differing positions, different careers, different personalities, different callings, and even different stages of life for their emphasis. What is God calling you to do now? How are you different from someone else? How might your calling vary as God is calling you to be a pastor scholar? The questions remain still as you think about, all right, are we all called to be pastor scholars? If I'm a pastor in a local church, and almost anyone, even who a pastor attending here is going to say, all right, if I am an in the trenches, weekly preaching, congregation shepherding, soul winning, sin challenging, hope dispensing. I've got four messages this week, five committee meetings, six housing sessions, seven deacons dancing, one wife expecting, and three French hens. What kind of a scholar do you expect me to be? And what kind of a pastor do my people need me to be? What does it mean to be a pastor scholar in the context of ministry? Should we be theologians? And to what degree, if that is our calling? The first question about whether we need to be any kind of a scholar theologian, I think, is the easiest to answer because we just go to the scriptures, right? We know we have to be some sort of a pastor teacher. We have to be able to explain the scriptures, to expound. And rightly divide the word of truth. So that 2 Timothy 2.15 phrase, rightly dividing, means to cut straight, to plow a straight furrow. you got to know something to be able to do that. You have to be able to parse the words, even as Charlie was doing earlier. You have to know to be able to do that. Paul contrasts this kind of accurate, life-producing preaching with inaccurate teachers whose mouthings, he says, are as life-threatening as gangrene in the church if we do not rightly divide the word of truth. We are called to be faithful and precise in our understanding and presentation of biblical truth, necessitating scholarship that involves a, careful words here, a degree of expertise in language, history, theology, Biblical pastoring requires a degree of pastoral understanding in the biblical text, in the biblical context. And that's why we pay the big bucks to teach in seminary and uh, hope students are paying bigger bucks. We are called to be scholars of the biblical world. We have to be, to explain the biblical word. 
we also have to be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us. We are not called only to to divide the Scriptures. We are called to defend their truths. And that requires something more than the knowledge of the Scriptures. To defend the truth, we have to have a knowledge of our world. What's going on in our people's lives? What is their context? What are, what are their challenges? What's the philosophy of the age that's challenging what we are thinking and what we are saying? And we certainly have the example of the Apostle Paul, whose various gospel approaches and different cultural settings are a clear example of how we must be prepared to understand our times and our world in order to penetrate its strongholds and take every thought captive by the Word of God. Biblical pastoring requires a degree of understanding, not just of the biblical world, but of our world. And that's a different kind, but also a necessary aspect of scholarship. We are called to be scholars of the current world, as well as the biblical world. And in particular, we are called to be scholars of our people's world. What are, what are they facing? I say to students, I'm sure some of you do it at the same time, that we are talking about, you know, the aorist use of the word and where we are in Israel's history and people are sitting there and saying my daughter did not come home last night do you get it why are you telling me this understand what I'm going through you know why I'm sitting here today I do not want to know how many years they wandered in the desert I mean tell me if you need to but tell me why I need to know that tell me you know my world current world understanding we all confess. Current world understanding can be overplayed so that our preaching and teaching becomes indistinguishable from the secular or the profane in the name of relevance or authenticity or even attraction. Paul warned us about itching ears and profit motives that would drive people to the word or at least to the preaching that was called the preaching of the word. But the biblical world understanding can be overemphasized in a matter that produces the scribal conceits and the dead letterism. The Bible itself does not shy from condemning. Neither a message on the hottest apps for my smartphone or the greatest insights of Hittitology are likely to produce the spiritual maturity that is the goal of faithful preaching. So what can keep our pastoring responsibly scholarly and our scholarship faithfully pastoral being scholars not just of the biblical world nor even of the current world but being scholars of the world of the spirit which was so much of what charlie was talking about when he talked about the preparation and production of preaching that begins on our knees which is, I know, easy to say, but I recognize the difficulty of my reading Philemon, verse 6. I love it in the NIV translation that was older. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Be active in the sharing of your faith so that you have a deep understanding of the things of Christ. The later NIV translation, uh, updated, more accurate, says, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith 
may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. The essence that comes through in both translations is involvement in spiritual mission is what deepens our understanding. I recognize that we will all struggle when we begin to have people like me say, you know, this means that pastors, excuse me, that professors cannot just be teachers alone. They must be pastors. And we all kind of, you you know, we agree. And we say, but in what way are you understanding that academics alone is not a deep understanding of the things of the faith? It may be deep understanding, but until your faith is active in its sharing, that you're part of the mission of God in what you are doing, that there is a shallowness, not of intellectual understanding, but of the work of the Spirit that must be communicated for what God must accomplish. Wrestling for souls is key to understanding the Word with the gospel scholarship that is the mark of faithful pastoring. Those whose goal is transformation as much as information, those whose aim is attraction to Christ more than attraction to pews, will know something about the significance of the Word that that is more than intellectual endeavor or even information transfer. Now, none of this should surprise us. If we are called to expounding and defending the truth, we know we have to be apt to teach. Biblical language, we have to be able to instruct. Um, That means, of course, that we have to be able to communicate ideas, but it also means, in ways that are beyond the page, that we have to be able to show their significance to God's people in our context. What does that mean if we are moving academic definitions of pastor-scholar beyond just knowing information of the biblical world or the current world, but moving into spiritual mission as part of our deepening understanding? If you just take that Nehemiah 8 model that we go to over and over again when we say, what is the preaching task? Uh, You remember the people of God have been in captivity. They don't remember the law of God. They don't remember the language of God when they come back. And so you remember that the Levites take the law and they instruct the people, what did that involve, that instruction? Well, we are told that they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so the people of God could understand what was being read. Now, if you're gonna talk about scholar preachers, you can even quote Hebrew, so here we go. They made clear the word, the Hebrew is parash, which probably here means simply to translate. It's not dead, let me just read you some Hebrew you don't understand anymore, right? So I have to to give you the meaning of the word so you can understand their meaning. But it's more than that. They gave the meaning, Hebrew sekel, which means it has to have an idea of insight. Not not just the word by dictionary definition, insight into what it would mean as it's understood, lived, And then finally, so that the people could understand the easiest of the Hebrew words, the hardest of our task, the Hebrew ben, they gave the significance so that people would know how to apply it to their lives, which is for us saying the pastor scholar, if we are doing all of the tasks, is saying, I have to show you not just what it means, not just give you insight that I know from 
from academic background, information background, from my pastoral record, I have to say, what's the significance for you? Which is part of our scholarship. Not just meaning, but some of you, well, all the hermeneutical arguments that go into it, it's not enough just to give you meaning if I'm not giving you significance. If you don't know significance, you really don't know what it means. And so we are being called to do that task as part of our scholarship. It's, it's incredibly helpful that that synagogue model, which you know gets echoed over and over again in the scriptures, is telling us what our task is. It's not just to give meaning. It's to give significance in order to pastor the people. The instructions were made clear, and they gave the meaning, and they showed the significance. It was not enough to communicate academic definitions or even abstract theology, though that was necessary. That's still in the equation. It was also necessary what difference the biblical truth made in the lives of the people. And to apply the Philemon insight again, to gain a deep understanding by sharing the implications in the partnership, the fellowship of the work of the gospel. So that we're not just giving the word of God to people, we're making it clear. But even as we do that, interestingly, it deepens our understanding. Not just theirs, it deepens our understanding as we are saying what is significant to them. What does it mean to be that pastor scholar or the minister theologian? It certainly means that we are to have knowledge of the biblical world and knowledge of the current world and explain meaning in the text. It also means that we have to have sufficient knowledge of God's people. Their lives, their struggles, their doubts, their fear, their pain. If we not only are to explain it to them, but to have our own understanding deepened. The old language of another time was that we were to be doctors of souls in order for our scholarship to be true stewardship of the word. I'm a doctor of your soul. Still distressing to many of my Presbyterian brothers are the words that are actually in our directory for public worship written to go along with the Westminster Confession. There our Reformation forefathers advocated preaching, the phrase from the directory, to the necessities and capacities of the people. Isn't that an interesting phrase? You need to preach to the necessities and the capacities of the people. We're usually quite happy to preach to their necessities. You need to know this. And when we do that, we, of course, deal with the necessities for what the text says, how you take that text into your culture. But, but when I deal with your capacities, that's not on the page and it's not in the newspaper. When I deal with your capacities, that's, that's in our relationship. What do I know about you? How are we pastoring? How are we relating? What do I know about your, your hurts, your difficulty, your fear? What does that preaching with insight, insight and heart for your capacities mean if I'm to go deep into the work remember it's that partnership in sharing the work of the gospel that's deepening my understanding of what the gospel is all this means that we cannot first just wing it and be faithful in the pulpit why because we have to rightly divide the word of truth and and that takes some work so there's the scholarly work of understanding scripture and culture and I grieve as you do for pastors who've become so pragmatic in their task, that they know how to gain a hearing, they know how to turn a phrase, they know how to get people to respond without actually going deep into the word themselves. 
And you and I, maybe you even perceive that in the moment. You know, we hear people who have the great reputation for them, and we listen to them, we go, you know, it was really good, but he didn't say much. And we grieve for that, that, that there was somebody rested on their laurels of which was highly developed in younger years and then stopped going deeper. And ultimately, it shallowed them out. And they can still impress, but it does not have the ability to take them deeper. And they resort to cliches of things they have said well in the past, and it echoes again and again, rather than their faith itself deepening with the scholarship that God is calling them to. We, we can easily be those pastors who lead, lean toward unexamined acceptance, of the things we have said in the past, that people are willing to accept, and it becomes merely pragmatic or traditional or our own preferential statements. We're not getting deeper understanding. If we're going to speak with both that, that insight and heart that is taking us deeper, then as scholars, we also cannot just teach it. Just, just pour out the commentary information. Just, you know, get your lexical aids and Go deeper into Logos this week and just tell them a few more things. Deep understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ requires being active in the sharing of our faith, becoming that doctor of souls, considering necessities and capacities. It means that we would dare to consider our scholarship inadequate if we are not hurting for people, if we are not considering, is this touching anybody or just impressing them? Is it transformative? What does it mean to be that theologian? William Ames, the Puritan, said that theology is the science of living unto God. Isn't that an interesting definition? What does it mean to be a pastor theologian? It's not just the study of God. It's the science, he said, of living unto God. And that, that task that keeps taking me deeper and deeper into the life of the Spirit is ultimately what is going to be taking me and my people into the scholarship that they need, which is not just love of reputation or in academic circles where we can just kind of close in on ourselves and our own conversations, love of novelty or even love of controversy as we too become more enthralled with what the gospel can provide for us than what it can provide for God's people. Can I get the most recognition out of the latest article? Can I say the most dramatic thing that they haven't heard yet or challenge the things that were on paper? You know, you can become really skilled at that. Are we going deeper into the mission of the Spirit is another question. Deep understanding of the word requires partnership in the gospel. In your local church, in your local prison, in your local soccer club, in your three-year-old Sunday school, I recognize that uh, we professors will say that our students are our ministry. And, and that may well be. If, if we are in their or somebody's lives beyond the lectern. But of course the challenge is, are we? in their lives. Do we, even as instructors, know whose wife miscarried last week? 
whose parents are divorcing, whose job is in jeopardy, whose child has autism, whose neighbor is addicted or poor or needing bail money. And if you know, are you pastoring those students? Now, I recognize we can pastor in lots of ways. I mean, I've made the same argument you have. We're teachers of students for a generation. Well, I pastor them from the class. That's my job. That's my calling. And, of course, I have office hours. They don't come, but I have office hours, you know. And this becomes all the more challenging in the generation of hybrid classes, distance learning, and commuter schools. I mean, we don't live together getting up at 5 a.m. and going to chapel together anymore. That, that doesn't happen. Which probably means that our partnership in the gospel is increasingly less was challenging with our students. It probably has to be increasingly more in the life of the local church. So that as we are communicating to students, we are speaking out of that profound sense of spiritual mission, even as we are speaking the information that must be said. If our seminaries and Bible schools, simply by economic dynamics, by the force of commuters and internet and so forth, simply become a university model of offering divinity courses where a few experts dispense scholarly gems for the informationally deprived, then, then we may be allowed to survive in a kind of literary atmosphere. Whether that is preparing scholar pastors is a whole other question. Are we just, here's, some of you know this, I mean, we've, some of us in this room have been in academics for a long time. I mean, the traditional seminary is now the dinosaur. What will happen? You know, big schools like this are the ones likely to survive. Small schools, mid-sized schools, very hard to survive. What will happen? You have large schools, cherry-pick the well-known faculty, and they will begin to feed the smaller schools or the internet learning. More and more students will become less movement. And so the large schools would cherry-pick the best professors. There will be fewer jobs, more distributed learning, and there will be less and less of what we are distributing that actually comes out of a pastoral context. And, and, and we're at some point have to say, are we training pastors pastorally? Or are we just dropping information bombs on them? and hoping they're going to come and be good pastors as they walk away from that computer or that I went two weeks to the seminary with the inverted classroom. Who is speaking from the sense of a pastor in the spiritual mission of God? And my heart is deepening in that understanding. I think it's a real challenge for us because it will actually be easier for us in the day's future to, to settle for dispensing the gems from our study rather than speaking from mission and spiritual ministry in the way of training another generation. So that just as we are teaching students who have not had parents what it now means to pastor and teach parenting, we increasingly will teach them how to be pastors not doing it ourselves. And they will not have the models that they require to be what they should be as a theologian pastor who's deep in the spiritual mission and that deepening understanding is what is informing 
our scholarship and our pragmatic understanding and at the same time, the work of the Spirit in us that is always the flow of the deepest ministry. So my own recent discovery by way of both confession and uh, rejoicing. So my little life history, I pastored for a decade and uh, then went into uh, seminary teaching and administration for 30 years. Now for um, most of the last decade, I've been back in the pastorate again. But that means for most of my career, I was a jack-in-the-box preacher. And some of you are jack-in-the-box preachers, right? Preaching a different pulpit almost every Sunday to represent the school, to answer invitations, to advance a cause, to advance my career. So now only in this last decade, after all of that, I just didn't think of it, 40 years in ministry, now I go back into local church ministry, I still preach in a lot of different places. But most Sundays, I am in the same church, ministering to the same people that I've gotten to know and love. And it's, it is hard for me, even with my brothers and sisters here, to put into words the difference of what that does in me and the process of it. For 30 years, I preached to raise funds, president of a seminary, to spread influence, I have a view on the nature of grace in all the scriptures. To advance a cause in denominational leadership. I know it's not true in the viewer circles, but we do have some political things that happen in Presbyterianism. But for the last decade, most of it, I've learned again what it means to wrestle for souls as I preach to parents whose child has cancer. as I preach to a couple who's still in church, despite the affair that they both know about. To preach to teens that I know are sleeping together or doing drugs or being abused by a father. And despite it all, to preach to them for Christ's sake. Now, I don't know how much longer the Lord will give this, me this ministry. I mean, I'm probably just by age and stage going to be back on the circuit before too many more years in a semi-retired mode. And I must tell you, I have a certain rattling of emptiness in me, but thinking what that will feel like again. Not knowing the people, not wrestling for what they are going through. And I, I don't just fear for I fear for me. What does it mean not to go deeply into the mission of the Spirit again in in what I'm learning and teaching and communicating. I, I just have trouble telling you the, the exhilaration of watching people turn to the gospel and the pain to me of people leaving the church because they didn't get what they wanted or the, the beauty of relationships healed or the fear that the message this week won't be as good as the one last week. Or the jack-in-the-box preacher who's coming this Sunday to preach his best stuff the way I used to. So I get compared to all of that. I will tell you, it's a thrill. The thrill of a roller coaster ride that puts me on my knees before the Spirit of God. And deepens my understanding of Him. 
and his work that I know I need to know. And I believe in some measure I had forgotten. So I praise God for another stage of life, but I challenge us all. It will be increasingly hard to minister out of the mission of the Spirit with the economic dynamics that are currently gripping academic theological education. We have to think about what we are doing, what our hearts are communicating. And I praise God for teaching me that I am not yet the scholar-theologian I thought I was. There is still a new and precious ground to plow in the harvest of the Spirit. And I challenge us all to keep plowing in that spiritual mission which teaches us that we might teach others for Christ's sake. Father, would you bless us in your word? You've given us great privileges, many of us, to teach others what it means to preach your word. Let us not rest on skills. Let us not seek only reputation. Let us not just delight in controversy. Something in us, if we are truly wrestling for souls, sees the shallowness of all of that. And we, we go further, deeper, asking on our knees for your help. And when we do that, somehow we know that that spirit of prayer and the power of the word that Charlie already mentioned comes to a greater reality, not just in our church, but in our own hearts. So give us that pastor-scholar of knowing you and being able to communicate the Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.